Episode 80, Tim Spiker, author of the book, The Only Leaders Worth Following. We talk about having a mindset of self-forgetfulness, a willingness to see and admit faults, and an eagerness to learn from and acknowledge others. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For show notes, links, and information about Tim's book and company, you can find all of that and more by going to markgraven.com slash mistake80. Our guest today is Tim Spiker. He is the founder of his company called The Aperio, and he is author of a book titled The Only Leaders Worth Following. So before I tell you more about Tim, uh, Tim, thanks for being here. How are you today? I'm great. I'm looking forward to visiting with you and the audience. Yeah, so there's a lot we can talk about today. But let me tell you a little bit about Tim first. For over 20 years, Tim has been helping individuals and organizations do one thing, lead better. And I think that's something I know I'm interested in that. I think a lot of the audiences as well. Tim delivers keynote speeches. He creates unique and customized learning experiences to effectively change the way people look at leadership in the short term, as well as guiding longer term developmental journeys, important stuff. Uh, His company, The Aperio, is dedicated to crafting better leaders, not by sharing secret tips, so I guess we won't expect that today, and that's okay, (laughs) but by helping people find the leadership potential within themselves, even when doing so uh, is hard. And yeah, personal development, changing, I mean, changing leadership uh, leadership styles in an organization is difficult. Would you agree, just random question, first off, it starts by looking in the mirror, that's hard enough. I mean, that is the that is the number one thing that we challenge people to do as honestly as they can. It is you probably won't do something more difficult and courageous if you do it genuinely than really look in the mirror. So before we could talk more about some of your um, observations and lessons around leadership, Tim, we're going to dive right in um, as usual. Can you tell us a story and you know, what's something back from your career that you would consider to be a favorite mistake? Okay. Well, my one of my favorite mistakes actually led to the career I'm in and the writing of the book. So I'm extremely thankful for this mistake uh, today. And yet it, in the moment, I was like, what? <laughs> so here's where that story begins. I was about to begin graduate school and I was waiting tables at a, at a at a restaurant kind of the outskirts of St. Louis, Missouri, here in the center of the United States. And I had a colleague invite me to an open house for a marketing company. And a couple of things that were going on for me at the time, I had planned that marketing was going to be a major focus for me in graduate school. And so that was appealing. And I also uh, made the assumption that there would probably be a free meal involved in this. And I was, uh, I was at a time in life when a free meal was extremely appealing. So between marketing and free meal, I was there. The reason that this falls into my favorite mistake category is that I should have been a little more curious and ask a few more questions about what a marketing, uh, what an open house is for a marketing company. Uh, Because I got there 
I figured there'd be a little bit of a presentation about three minutes in. I figured out what an open house for a marketing company is. And this was the mistake part. I was actually sitting in a recruiting meeting for a multi-level marketing company. And I know that many people have been uh, blessed by that world. I've got nothing against it myself. However, I had exactly zero interest in selling water purifiers to my family and friends. And so I had a, I had a moment there. I took a seat in the middle of the room. Am I going to make a scene or stick it out? And I decided to stick it out and that I'd wait for the break and I'd grab a sandwich and get out the door at that point in time. But that is when I was really, that was when my, my interest in leadership really got peaked because what happened after that intro is they started talking about what a horrible experience it is to be an employee. They started talking about what a drag it is and how people don't invest in you and they don't care about you. And I just sat in that seat in the in the middle of the room, Mark, and I didn't hear anything else that was in the presentation. That the teacher became like Charlie Brown's teacher to me at that point. And I just thought, it doesn't have to be that way. It could be that somebody says, What is it, Tim? What is it like to work for Mark? My answer could be, it's the most incredible blessing in my life. I can't believe how much we're accomplishing. I can't believe how much I'm growing and developing. It's amazing how it even is positively influencing my, my relationships at home. Like that could be the answer, but it sure wasn't the answer that night. That night, everybody responded with doom and gloom and weeping and gnashing of teeth. It, it was awful. But I left. I did leave at the break, by the way. When I had the break, I did grab a sandwich. I did get out the door. But that was the night that I decided that I'm going to go learn as much as I can about leadership. I had some very underdeveloped, naive thoughts at the time, but I just started interviewing as many people as I could. That was 20 years ago. And you just follow all the, the breadcrumbs and dominoes that eventually led to the research and the writing of this book. So for all for everything that came after it, my favorite mistake is the fact that I didn't ask more about what an open house for a marketing company is, because if I had known, I never would have gone and I wouldn't be in this career today that I'm so thankful for. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of really interesting points to draw out from your story there. So for one, going into it, you thought this was about the possibility of a full-time job. Is that right? Well, you know, I, I think that many times you're like, hey, well, maybe at least an internship. Like maybe as I start my graduate studies, who knows? This will, uh, at a minimum, I thought I would learn something about marketing. So yeah, there was some of that perhaps future possibilities in a very different way than it turned out. Yeah. And and you said you were invited by a friend or a friend told you about it. Were they already yeah. part of that that sales, that oh, multi-level? Well, yes, they were. <laughs> they yes, were. Okay. It was a it was a fellow server at the restaurant where I was waiting tables. And so yes, she was uh, she was already involved, thus the invitation. But you know, thinking back to grad school, uh, yeah, I can totally appreciate the offer of a free meal sandwich or otherwise. That That's right. Yeah. Well, will help draw you in. But you know, I think it's interesting, Tim, you had such unexpected outcomes. Oh, you probably yeah. had such a unique outcome of anybody else in that room who was probably thinking about it on the level of, do I want to get involved in this or not? Am <laughs> I going to stay until the end or can I get out yeah. now? I think it's really fascinating you had that observation. So part of their pitch was basically saying, hey, you know, being an employee is terrible. 
or yep. it could be. So this is a path out. That That's was part exactly of what they were right. pitching. That was part of the presentation that night. And there was there was wholesale agreement in the room that night that, that being an employee, that actually following somebody was a bad, bad and that, I mean, that's, that's really sad. It, it is. I, I, I'm not doubting it. I'm not saying people shouldn't feel that way. It's just, it just makes me a little sad. Yeah. It, it, very sad. But you know, for me, it, it turned out to be a trigger point to, to wake up to a word and a concept that uh, has, has had a hold of me ever since that night. Yeah. Well, I mean, your, your trigger point was less of a time investment. I, I won't go into detail about it, but my first job out of college, I was working as an industrial engineer in a general motors plant. And my key takeaway from that first year was this kind of desire, this idealistic idea that people shouldn't hate coming to work because that's what I was surrounded by Oh wow! in that first year. Um, mm-hmm. Salaried hourly. It, it was, it was like they, I, I sometimes use the analogy. It's like you, you walked in the door and you checked out a little dark cloud that would float over your head all day <laughs> and you return it before you leave. Like if you were in a good mood when you were walking in, Leave that, leave that in a locker or something. So I, I appreciate that motivation that however you want to frame it, it shouldn't be terrible to be an employee. Um, how do we create companies and environments that can actually be beyond that terrible, um, yeah. actually fulfilling and adding something to people's lives. So on, on the more positive side of that, maybe, you know, we talk about, um, the book. I want to talk about your company and the book. Let me ask uh, actually first about the company because maybe that's part of the sequence. You started the company. The, the name, the Aperio. Yeah, I'm sure the listeners might be wondering. Well, what, what's that mean? What's yeah. that word? It's a Latin word that means the reveal, to lay bare, to uncover. the The work that we do is primarily around helping organizations and individuals see some very important but relatively unheralded truths about leadership. That's the uncovering part. So we spend the bulk of our work doing that, thus the, thus the Aperio. So when you work with organizations, um, are you helping uncover behaviors or tendencies that people may want to become more aware of so they can work toward changing those behaviors? Yeah, is that, that part of the that's process? It in, yeah, in an essential sense, it is. What we're able to do is, we're able to bring in um, some research that, that I was a part of and then other, other uh, similar parallel research projects to help people see some things about leadership that just don't get very much airtime. And so what we do is we, we essentially show them the research and then just over and over and over again, we come back to people's uh, real life and we say, okay, let's talk about what you've seen and what we help them see is that it's not a research project in some far off land or from some far off lab or somebody's crunching numbers, but it's actually been a part of their life previously. It just didn't necessarily have a name. And so we want to give it a name and an explanation. And now we can do something about it. And so that's in terms of the uncovering process. We want to share with them research, but we don't want to leave it at that. We want to help them see how that research has played out where they have been living and leading as well. So when you talk about not just sharing tips or tricks, this isn't about stealing, copying tactics from other, some admirable high-performing company. It's, is it fair to say it's more about looking within? It is. And that gets to the, that kind of gets to the guts of the research and message. So do you want to do, should we dive into that at this point? Yeah, please. Okay. Yeah. 
All right. So in the simplest form, what we accidentally found is that three quarters, or if you want to be really technically accurate, 77% of our effectiveness as leaders comes from who we are, not what we do. So I'll say that again. Three quarters of your effectiveness as a leader comes from who you are, not what you do. And we stumbled into that reality, which is one of my favorite parts of the story. We weren't looking for that. We were actually, I was working with a boutique consulting firm. We had statistics on personality, natural ability, and leadership performance. And our clients would ask us for, you know, what's the, what's the connection point? What's the magic mix that gives us a better chance of finding a more exceptional leader? And we were running that data to look for that. And we found absolutely no correlation at all. <laughs> there was nothing. But because SPSS software does what it does, it looks for correlations in places you're not looking. And so what my colleague, Vanessa Kiley, found is that if we just looked at our leadership assessment by itself, there were eight aspects of leadership that we were measuring. So think of it as a pizza. If all eight are equally important, then any two slices should be worth 25% of the variability. And what we stumbled into is that just under 70% of the variability was driven by just two of those slices. She re-ran the data years later with 10 times the data point, and it went up to 77%. One day, as I was looking at this data, that's when the kind of the idea landed on my on my head, so to speak. A bell went off. I realized that those two areas that were worth so much more of our variability in our assessment, those were uniquely about who the leader is as a human being. The other six were about what the leader does. And that's when the revelation kind of revealed itself that who you are has a massive impact on how effective you are as a leader. And so we get to this, we get to this idea of uh, the who not what principle that we've been talking about here. And so getting back to where you jumped in, in terms of looking within, we want to help leaders uh, better see accurately who they are, what, you know, what we mean when we say the who of leadership. We have a very specific thing that we mean by that and to help them enhance that who because that will make them better in everything else that they do as a leader. So I'm, I'm going to ask you a couple questions about punctuation, I guess. there when you, In the book, um, it says the who, not what principle, there's an asterisk Yeah. after yeah. the who. What, 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 what's that asterisk mean? Well, what you see throughout the entire book um, is that we have that asterisk because it essentially represents a footnote. And this kind of gets back to the uncover and lay bare piece. And so what you see there, you know, on every other page at the bottom is this who not what principle that's printed, which is three quarters of your effectiveness as a leader comes from who you are, not what you do. The reason that we put the asterisk everywhere is to refer back to that footnote, because these are the things that, frankly, that are, relatively speaking, in the world of organizational life, hidden and forgotten. We don't talk about them. E even if you look at an article recently, take HBR, for example. I mean, obviously, they're an incredible, uh, they just put out incredible content time after time after time after time. They have written quite a bit recently about empathy. And that's a very who-oriented topic. But as you dig into those articles, what you will see time and time again is that most authors stop just short. They will only speak about the skills of empathy. And I would just suggest this to the audience. 
And, and that's more of the do, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, like, yeah, how, yeah. How do we do empathy? Yeah, yes, yes. Okay, but I'm not sorry, against doing empathy yeah. well, but right. I would suggest, do you want to be empathized with somebody who's checking the four steps of empathy? <laughs> or do you want to be empathized with somebody who is yeah. connecting their heart to the emotion that you're feeling? The steps can help us get there. I readily admit that. But articles that we find in the various traditional publications around organizational life and business, they almost always stop at the skill level. They don't have the deeper conversation. And frankly, I think that's the conversation that we need to have. I know it can be offensive and scary. And, and somebody might say, well, what business do I have talking about that? Well, I said, well, the answer is your business ought to be talking about that because it impacts three quarters of your leader's effectiveness. So it should be your business to talk about that. It goes much deeper than skill. Yeah. And look, there's probably somebody out there right now writing a book titled The Four Steps to Empathy or something like that. <laughs> That's true. Because, and I, you know, I, I, I've seen this in a lot of organizations where I, I really appreciate the thesis or the, the, the main point you're bringing across. Um, leaders will always look for tactics. What does that other what does that other organization do? That word, right, that word comes up. I've seen in so many settings when an organization is trying to adopt a new leadership style or culture. So my second year at that General Motors plant brought in a new leader, great leader, world of difference. It wasn't even so much about what he did, but to your point, it was more about who he is and how he was. Mm-hmm with people. And I've seen in, in settings where like some of my listeners who share a similar professional background to me, we'll see leaders read a book about here's the things they did at this other hospital. And then they'll literally create a checklist of like, well, I'm going to go and do a team huddle for 10 minutes every day. And like when that, and, and people sit, stand there staring at their shoes for 10 minutes, not a whole lot really is accomplished. Or if somebody actually does have a point, they're like, Nope, 10 minutes time's up. But that might not be how, or who they are at that other organization. So I, I think a lot of times new do, this is going to be very badly stated, new do with the same who probably doesn't lead to much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm not down, you know, it's funny. I, I, I have said to many people like the tips, tricks, and tactics conversation is not one that I want to be a part of. Probably a more thorough statement around that is, I don't mind tips, tricks, and tactics at all when then they are in the hands of a well-developed who. But when people don't worry about how well-developed they are internally, the tips and tricks and tactics will never work. It's a, it's a, it's a, hollow, it's a hollow effort. People see through it. They feel the difference. And then in many cases, the leaders themselves get disillusioned because they'll be like, well, that didn't work. I guess that other author's <laughs> research is no good. Well, right. maybe you didn't do the foundational work to put those tactics on top of. If you ask me to pick between great tactics and a really well-developed human being, I'm going with the really developed, well-developed human being every time because they'll figure out some of that other stuff. It's about that. The tactic's going to get you a marginal improvement. I'm not saying that doesn't matter but it's not going to get you the guts of what you need. And so that's, that's why I get a little, a little bit out of shape when we get way too focused on the tactical stuff. Yeah, no, I, I, I can understand and appreciate that. Um, our guest again is Tim Spiker. His book 
is the only leaders worth following. There's an asterisk there uh, with <laughs> the word worth. Um, similar thing. Is that something that's footnoted throughout the book when you use that phrase? Exactly. And so on the, you know, the cover of the book, you note that it's next to the word worth, because what we're trying to suggest is what makes somebody worth following. And what makes them worth following is this under the ground, hidden behind the scenes thing about who that person is. And so, yeah, that asterisk is just meant to point to that who, not what principle over and over and over again, because what do we normally do with footnotes? Like right past it, right? I'm not coming back to that. I'm not going to, I know there's, there's a bunch of end notes in the book. I don't expect that anybody reads them, but they're there if for the few people that want to. So we just keep emphasizing that this, you know, behind the scenes thing is actually where the bulk of the uh, bulk of what makes something great lives. And so we just, we just put that asterisk. It's even in, it's even in our company logo. So it's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like this idea of understanding what leaders are worth following based on who they are, mm-hmm. it seemed like there would be implications then for uh, a job seeker or somebody even looking to switch within a company into uh, a different role under a different leader. Um, maybe you know, this is a difficult thing to figure out through an interviewing process, or but do you have any thoughts on how we can... Um, get a better sense of who that leader mm-hmm. is. Are they worth following so that we don't you know, stumble into something and realize, well, this isn't a meeting I can just leave early. Like, you know, I'm committed to this job <laughs> and I don't, want to quit. I don't want to quit right away. Maybe that's the right thing to do sometimes. Yeah. But what are, what are the implications for not the leaders who are trying to be better leaders, but let's say for somebody who's trying to figure out, do I want to follow this leader? No. I, I love this question because, you know, it's part of the reason why we wrote the book is to help not only leaders become better leaders, but also to help us choose better leaders to follow. And in the end, what that requires us to do is we have to look for who. We can't just look at the resume. We can't just hear about the department that's, you know, there, there are any number of things that might create a department or an organization's results in a given year or two or three. The real question, if we can get at it, and I realize it's tough, is but if you're especially if you're moving internally, like I would do everything that I could to interview two or three people that work for that person and then ask who based questions. For example, when things don't go well, tell me what this leader is like when things don't go well or when pressure is high. Is this a is this an inwardly sound leader that brings brings calm to difficulty? When things go off the rails, is this a leader who is manically looking for other people to blame? Or is this somebody with some humility that owns they contributed to the problem? You know, and so internally, if you're looking to, you're thinking about making a move, it's a great practice to ask who oriented questions of the people that work for that leader to get a sense for, because here's the other thing, you know, the sub, the, um, the subtitle on the book, talks about the fact that leaders have a profound impact on our lives. So it's, you know, why some leaders succeed, others fail, and how the quality of our lives hangs in the balance. I know we want to achieve and accomplish and progress in our own careers, but I think it's really important to not miss the fact that the leaders that we work for have a profound daily impact, in most cases, on our quality of life. 
And so, you know, I've worked for great leaders and horrible leaders. And, you know, to make this point, I should probably bring my my wife onto the onto the podcast here and say, hey, talk about what it was like to live with me when I was working for that horrible leader. Is she what, there? <laughs> she's not here. Oh, she's not. Okay. All right. No, I, I can tell you what she I, I thought this was a surprise. Like, turn no, no, the no, camera on a little bit. That, right, that would be that would be a fun thing to do on someone's podcast. Yeah. Like but go yeah. Sorry. Well, go ahead. She endured hours, right, right, right. hours and hours of me trying to process how do I survive working for this leader? How do I do it in a professional way? How do I not lose my mind? And of course, that doesn't even take into account the emotion that she's feeling married to the person who's really struggling through this time, which creates a whole different thing. And so we can't forget that in the, in the midst of business and organizational life where we want to produce results and we want to um, we want to stay gainfully employed and bonuses and all of that, that the leaders we follow really have a big impact on our quality of, of, of life in most cases. And gosh, I hope that we're thinking about that as we're deciding who to follow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think back to, again, my, my days at General Motors, I, I, undoubtedly some people forgot to return the dark cloud on their way out the door. I'm sure they took it home with them. I took it home. By accident. I, was, I wasn't um, married at the time, but you know, my wife who listens to these episodes, um, I, I, I picture her listening to this and thinking, you know, without going into the details. Yeah. There's times where, where I've brought home a dark cloud and it wasn't fun to be around. And we all sometimes, you know, go through phases of that where our work is less enjoyable than, it is um, at other times, but you know, I, building on your point, I think it's not just the effects on relationships, which are, of course, so important. Mm-hmm. I've seen research that talks about the impact on physical health. Oh yeah, oh yeah, stress levels, Absolutely. heart attacks, longevity. I mean, there, yeah. there's I've, I've seen some co- right- yeah elevated cortisol levels yeah. are not good for the body. Yeah, uh, over long periods of time. So yeah, no. and so I think you know it comes back to this question of. You know, if somebody would say, look, I, I've got no choice here. I've got to drive for results. I've got to act this way. Here's the phrase that to me is a bit of a, a, a red flag or a trigger. It's just business. I'm like, well, no, no, this is affecting people's lives. It's not just business. I mean, if anybody ever says uh, it's just business or it's not personal, oh, mm, yeah. get ready. Something horrible is about to happen. I mean, yeah, that's the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, mm. that's. That's the cue. And it also, it's, if somebody says it's just business, you know, okay, you're playing a short-term game. You're playing a short-term game. Um, All the things that we talk about are long-term leadership success. Who do I want to, I get a choice about who I'm going to hitch my wagon to. And that involves not only the bottom line, but also these other things that we're talking around development and quality of life. And so, um, the it's just business crowd, they can, they can justify it. I get it. And especially when you're, if you're in acquisitions, if you're in the deal game, I, I get that mentality. But even in that space, you have an organization and you have people deciding whether or not they want to follow you. You just have to decide what are you really about? And I say this to people occasionally, look, if your primary goal in life is to be an exceptional leader, that's great. If your primarily, if your primary goal in life is to um, elevate your social status and to fill your bank account, you can do that. Just don't conflate the two because they're mm-hmm. two different goals. Now, most yeah. of the time in business, 
the exceptional leader also produces an exceptional bottom line result. You're not needing to make a choice, but it's a harder road with more introspection and more looking in the mirror and more working on who you are. It's, it's, and so if you're like, look, I'm after status and money and I'm going to call it leadership. I just want to say, just say you're after yeah, status right. and money. Like, don't yeah, yeah. let's not pretend that this is about leading people. Let's say that let's call, let's call this what it is. And you can be settled in that and the people around you can make an informed choice. So I know I sound a little bit of a smart aleck when I say it that way, but just because there's plenty of people who have been poor leaders who produce dollars. We cannot, there's no, there's not a causality there. You have to be really careful. And so let's just, let's just be honest about what it is that we're after. Yeah. Uh, you know, we think, well, I'm not going to name names, but you can think of leaders in the tech space. Um, some of whom are no longer with us and some of whom are alive, where people will point to their behaviors and the success that they or the company had as a way of then, let's say, as a startup CEO saying, well, I need to be like that. Yeah. And I think that really gets people off track. If they, well, it's, kind of, it's not just rationalizing, let's say, the, 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 the bad leadership behavior. It's almost saying like, well, yeah. they're, 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 um, they're, they're confusing correlation and causation. They're thinking yeah. like that. What we might say, well, that's bad leadership. That didn't lead to good results. It's it's the unknowable thought experiment of maybe they would have had even better results if they were a different type of leader. You know, we we have, I'll name names. <laughs> we we have the greatest example of this in Steve Jobs. So, I was, mm-hmm, okay. yeah. so Steve, let's go Steve Apple 1.0. Most people have read that story. He becomes wildly rich by almost anybody's standard, say very few people on the planet, essentially gets run out of his own company. It was such a quote unquote great leader that they didn't want him around. And so there's there's a great book about this called Becoming Steve Jobs. And of course, I love that title because it gets to the inner story. Steve goes to Next and Pixar and then boomerangs back to Apple. And something happened to Steve through that experience with Next and Pixar. Now, let me say what didn't happen. Steve did not become Mother Teresa. <laughs> he did not he did not go from one extreme to the other, but Steve did change as a person. And when he came back to Apple, he had all of the all of the intellectual and strategic genius that he always had. But what showed up a little bit more was a little bit more curiosity and just a little bit more empathy and just a little bit more humility. And I'm saying a little bit because I do not want to paint Steve Jobs 2.0 as mm-hmm. a saint. He was not. Right. But there are many was. stories. Yeah. No, he, there are still stories, right? Mm-hmm. Still broken relationships. But mm-hmm. he was a more well-developed human being at that point than the first time. And so when you look at the results, Steve Jobs 1.0, Apple 1.0, like, okay, wildly rich and really successful. He shifted a little bit. Mm-hmm. The second who time, he was, yeah. who he was and Apple becomes the most valuable company on the planet. So you kind of have in Steve Jobs, unfortunately, not a fuller story because of his death. And again, for the 10th time, not a saint, but when you have as much power and influence as Steve Jobs and your who shifts better just by 10%. Mm-hmm. It's like Warren Buffett making 10%. It's not like yeah. me taking making 10%. <laughs> yeah. 
it has a much bigger impact when the person at significant influence and power makes that shift. Apple, the first time to Apple, the most valuable company on the planet, has a hugely influenced by Steve Jobs 1.0 becoming Steve Jobs 2.0. And I, in Steve's life, I think we see the who, not what story play out very clearly, even at the financial level. We get to see, I think for him, it's not the unknowable thought experiment. If you read through Becoming Steve Jobs, <laughs> you get to see what happened mm-hmm. and that small shift yeah. in who he was. His skills did not get better between, I mean, he learned a few new things, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't primarily about that. And now Apple became what it became. So I, I think Steve is a is a wonderful example of the who, not what principle in mm-hmm. action. Yeah, and, and I think in a slightly different way, um, Jack Welch, who's also no longer with us. Um, why I, I'm not a, I'm not a huge Jack Welch fan. Um, there are many who emulated a lot of the do, like things I think that were really destructive. Like you've got to fire the bottom ten percent. That's every right. Year. Yep. Things like that. But now, if there was a Jack Welch 2.0, it was in his retirement when he was writing. And I, I've seen him actually in, in, you know, in his later years, for one, kind of disown the fire of the bottom 10% thing, that do. But mm-hmm. he talked about basically, uh, I, it's reminding me of your who, not what principle, where I saw something Jack Welch wrote and talked about basically a two by two matrix. Okay. Is the leader or the salesperson or whatever, are they getting results or not? Are they behaving the right way or not? And, and Jack Welch was advising people, even if he didn't do this, when he was in his career at GE, he's saying like, we can no longer tolerate people who are driving results with the wrong behaviors. If mm-hmm. someone has got the right behaviors and isn't driving the results, they're coachable. That's right. And you can yep. help them. Yeah. Um, I, th- I, th- I think that's an important lesson, even if he didn't always practice that. I don't, I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting as people move along later in life, you know, one person might look at them and say, oh, they're getting soft. Uh, another person might look at him and say, "Oh, they're getting wise," you know. And so, <laughs> yeah. look at you look at the same story and come to a different conclusion with lots of different things. Right. Well said. Yeah. Um, so, one other question I want to ask you, Tim. You talked earlier about you know trying to interview, um, learn about a leader that you might work for, and I love you brought up the the the, the question or the example. What happens when things go wrong? So that ties in, I think, to the theme of this podcast of. Creating an you know, when 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 there's a quote unquote mistake, what I mean, how would you want to see leaders respond? Um, and, and what what sort of who, not necessarily the do. Um, yeah. What what leads to more effective leaders and better results? So this is this is actually a really relevant question to something that we work with our clients on all the time. When we're digging into the issue of humility. We talk about having a mindset of self-forgetfulness, a willingness to see and admit fault, and an eagerness to learn from and acknowledge others. Now, I'm going to take that middle one, a willingness to see and admit fault. When, you know, when you know what hits the fan, when things have gone poorly, the most exceptional leaders that we want to run through walls for they ask themselves, what could I have done better? Even if that mistake is three levels away from them, they first look back to the mirror and say, okay, 
what I wanted did not get translated. Was was my strategy wrong? Maybe my strategy was right, but my communication was wrong. Maybe but those were both fine, but my I didn't spend enough time helping people really catch the whole vision. Like you could go down the line, you can question a number of different things. But the point is they're questioning their own contribution first. Now, I'm not suggesting that when things go wrong, leaders need to artificially pretend that they had the mallet in their hand that broke everything 100% of the time, okay? So I don't know whether your contribution was 2% or 98%. It could be either one. What's more important than that is that you own 100% of what you did. <laughs> and yes, you know, the old phrase, the buck stops with me as a leader. What we see rampantly in our world today is nobody taking ownership, which is devastating leadership. It is absolutely, I mean, not only is it crushing leadership now, but we're providing examples for others of exactly what not to do. Humility is a really amazing quality in leaders. It is like a magnet. And we trust people more. And that's where, that's where all this comes home to roost, by the way, and who not what. It's about trust. When we trust people more, we bring the want to as opposed to just the have to to the work. And so when things go wrong, if you want to begin practicing those ideas of, of what it really means to be an exceptional leader, you will lead by example and say, here's what I could have done better. Here's where I made a contribution. And if you're really amping it up and you're not sure, you ask your team, hey, what could I have done better? Now, if you've been beating your team with sticks for years, you're not going to get much response in that moment. <laughs> Silence doesn't mean that you didn't contribute. <laughs> it might mean that your team is scared to tell you the truth. So that's a, that's a different story. But if you can lead the way, here's what happens. I'm going to say all other things being equal, because if I have been metaphorically beating my team with sticks for years, this may not happen. But what happens often is if I have the humility to own my contribution, so many times the other team members start to see, oh, wait, this is about finding the solution. This isn't just about how do we blame people. Mm -hmm. You know what? What did yeah, I yeah. do that I could have done better? And now you're modeling over time. Don't do it once and think that's enough. You're gonna have to, you're gonna have to actually be humble over time, not just try it on one day. But then you're inviting other people to own their contribution. And now, if we do that over and over again, Mark, if we have humility that owns contribution and we do that as an organization, in many ways, what we've just defined, that is a high-speed learning organization. And so I, I go to that level because everybody wants a high-speed learning organization, but they're not addressing how who creates that. And so I don't have to explain why high-speed learning organizations have a strategic advantage. This is why who you are actually ends up showing up in the end results. So that's a, I'm, I'm drawing all these things together, but that's, those are the connection points between who and the types of organizations that we're leading. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tim. Thank you for connecting those different points. And, and I, it's, it's, it's so, I think, you know, everything you said there is so in keeping with the themes that, that we explore and sort of advocate for here on the podcast. So um, I really appreciate um, all, all the insights that you've shared um, here with us today. So again, our guest is uh, Tim Spiker. His company is The Aperio. You can find them online at theaperio.com. And I'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes. 
And again, the book is The Only Leaders Worth Following with the important subtitle, Why Some Leaders Succeed, Others Fail, and How the Quality of Our Lives Hangs in the Balance. That's, that's such an important thought and so powerfully stated. So Tim, thank you again so much. Thank you for being a guest today. Mark, really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks again to Tim Spiker for being our guest today. For show notes, links, and more information, you can go to markgraven.com slash mistake80. And I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they've started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work, and they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.